Welcome to Nanny Ogg's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is Episode 8, Sorcery. Sorcery is the fifth book in the Discworld series and the third in the Unseen University series published in 1988. It is the last book we are reading from the 80s and returns us back to the sword and sorcery, literally, of the Unseen University series, but begins to dig into the characterization of Rincewind and pivots towards a broader view of the Discworld and magic. On the Discworld, it is common knowledge that the eighth son of an eighth son is a wizard, but the eighth son of an eighth son of an eighth son is a sorcerer, a wizard squared, a being too powerful to be held by reality. But one wizard deliberately has an eighth son out of vengeance, prophesying that he will destroy the world. Eight years later, the sorcerer, Coin, arrives at the Unseen University on the eve of the confirmation of a new Archchancellor, claiming the university and the disc for his own. But his magic is too powerful, bringing out the worst in the wizards and attracting the attention of beings of the dungeon dimensions, and the only one who can stop him is the failed wizard Rincewind. You messaged me like a week ago saying, I have so many thoughts about this book, which is great because I also have so many thoughts about this book. But what was your first impression as you read through this? Jokes on you, that was yesterday. Feels like a week ago. Yeah, yesterday at 9.16, my time. Yeah. Or maybe I also did. I, I mean, I probably did also send send it to you a week ago as well. I am writing a dissertation right now. Time flows a bit differently when you're doing that. <laughs> I am also writing a dissertation. What's your dissertation on? Science fiction and medical humanities. Oh, nice. Mine's on the use of fake documentary evidence in horror fiction. That is a great subject for a dissertation. It means I get to talk about, uh, for a whole chapter, about all of the podcasts that I'm friends with, because that's kind of what they do. And I wanted to do that on its own, just talk about podcasts. And they were like, I don't think you can talk about just podcasts, because I don't think that's technically literature in the eyes of the department. I'm like, well, can it be a chapter? And they're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> I have a whole chapter on House of Leaves. I love House of Leaves. one of my favorite books ever. You know what other book I really like? What book? Sorcery. You see that segue? That was a wonderful transition, and I was very curious on whether you would like this book or not, so you liked it. Yeah, at the end of it, I think I like it. Yeah. Like, there were points throughout it where I was kind of like, back and forth. It's definitely the most back and forth I've been while reading a Discworld book so far. Because, like, there's some that I, I like straight away, like Weird Sisters, like Mort, like Guards Guards. Uh, and then there's some that I'm, like, straight out I know are boring, like Pyramids. And then there's ones that I don't particularly like, like Equal Rights. This one where I was like, okay, I don't know where this is going. And I don't know whether I like where it's going. But yeah, at the end of it, I think overall, I quite enjoyed it. It's definitely my favorite Rincewind book. Well, that actually answers a question I had, because I was going to ask you to rank it in comparison with The Color of Magic and Light Fantastic. So, let's see. So, this one is top of the Rinsen one so far. So, it would be a Sorcery, then Light Fantastic, then Color of Magic. As we read more Rinsen books, the gap between definitely Light Fantastic and Color of Magic will open up more. My thoughts on 
Life Fantastic overall are generally getting more positive. Like, I liked it, and I think I gave it four stars on Goodreads. But yeah, I think I'm now looking back, I'm like, I think I liked that more than I, I initially thought. So and the other thing, too, is, and you've mentioned this a couple of times, is the Color of Magic and the Light Fantastic really read as one story. Like, it's really one narrative between those two books. So sorcery almost reads more like a sequel than it does, like, the third book of a series. Yeah. Because we're actually picking up with, like, what happens next to Rincewind after he saves the universe from being ripped apart by Trimen and the eight great spells of the Octavo. Let's just dive right in, and there's a lot of different ways we could approach this, so I'm just going to start with the main thread of this book, which is the sorcerer, sorcery, eighth son of an eighth son of an eighth son. I have a very memorable experience of reading the first part of this book, where we get introduced to Ipslor the Red, who is sitting on a beach with his child after the death of his wife, and he's cursing wizardry in general and vowing vengeance on them and he's having this whole conversation with death and talking about how his son is going to show them and he's going to be a sorcerer death is trying to follow the conversation but not really doing a great job because death is much more literal than ipslor is as a character so we get this wonderful line where ipslor asks what is life what is worth living for in life and death says cats cats are nice so what do you think ipslor the red the whole thread of sorcerers and sorcery in this book. I quite liked it. One thing I noticed, well, the, like I've kind of noticed before, but now the way that Pratchett describes death sometimes, where it's like, you know, he turned at a sudden silence behind him and looked up through te- tear-reddened eyes at a tall hooded figure in a black robe. Ipslor the Red, it said. The voice was hollow as a cave, as dense as a neutron star. And it's like, it's kind of like what we talked about in, I don't know, was it the Pyramids episode? Where, you know, he's talking about things that people on the disc have would have no knowledge of. And it's like, it's really weird that he always talks about these, like, really kind of thermonuclear physics-y kind of ways. But then also, like, I found out in between... Those, the last Discworld book we read, and, and now that Terry Pratchett was a nuclear engineer... That was a job he had? Yes, he was. So, like, that explains it. We get a couple of those in this book. Like, we get the reference to the occult agenda that the genie has that shows all these, like, arcane secrets. And one of them is, like, the three secret stops on the London Underground. So we get that kind of, like, meta reference. We also get, again, with the genie, he's, like, on a cell phone at one point. It never actually says that he's on a cell phone, but that's clearly what's happening in the scene. But none of the other characters understand what's going on because he can pop back and forth between realities. So the implication here is that the genie can go to our reality and perhaps belongs more to our reality than he does to the disc reality. But we also, like you said, this narrative voice still has that meta voice. And again, it's really like a winking at the audience. It's the narrator understanding that the audience will understand these things, even though the characters won't. So the way the genie is presented in this is very much like Robin Williams's genie from Aladdin. And then I was like, I wonder how long Aladdin was out before this. No, it turns out Sorcery was published four years before Disney's Aladdin came out. So it really seems to like predict Robin Williams's genie. 
It does. I hadn't even thought about that, but you're absolutely yeah, this right. Definitely, like, it really feels like when he's first introduced, you know, where he's saying shit to Aladdin, like, wish for the, like, go on, wish for the Nile. And Aladdin goes, I wish for the Nile. And he goes, no. <laughs> yeah, it does kind of feel like that because the genie is like a very fast talking. He almost reminds me of like an L.A like publicist or something like, you know, oh, we should do lunch or let me pencil you in for next Tuesday, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, he literally says, have your people call my people. That's a direct quote. That is absolutely true. He's also not very helpful in any sense of the word. No, but see, with with this genie, I don't know how we've gotten so focused on the genie now. So like the conception of, of a genie other than like the genie in Aladdin or, like, they're unhelpful in the sense that, like, they either unintentionally or deliberately misinterpret your wishes. You know, where it's like, you want a raspberry crown, and instead of getting a pastry, you get a wasp. That's an example, because they're named the same or whatever. But this genie yeah. just, like, is unhelpful because he's as useless as an ashtray on a motorbike. <laughs> Although there is a little bit of what you just said because Creosote asks for a drink and gets like flat warm water <laughs> instead of alcohol, which is clearly what he meant to ask for. The other thing to bring us back to the sorcery angle of it is that we've been going through all these books and almost every single one of the books we've read so far has told us wizards don't get married, wizards don't have sex, wizards are generally distrustful of women. and. We finally get an answer as to why. It's because of sorcery. You, you get this moment where it says, you know, there's all these rules about wizards and sex, especially with women, but none of the wizards really know why. They just assume it has to do with, like, corrupting their magic or something. But the real reason is, is that if wizards were allowed to go breeding all the time, there was a risk of sorcery. So there's this idea that, like, the reason that no wizard can have sex is because they might accidentally do the whole eighth son of an eighth son of an eighth son type of progeny. But here we get Ipslor doing it on purpose. Well, also, like, I like this concept that they've introduced of the mage wars, because it's just like, this feels like a thing that they've just put in. You know what I mean? In the same way that they had to make, like, a whole Star Wars show or something, because they had, I don't know, I've never seen Star Wars, but... I've seen a screen grab of it on the internet where, like, Luke asks Obi-Wan Kenobi, oh, you fought in the Clone Wars, right? And then they made a whole series, like, explaining what the Clone Wars were. Just the way they dropped the Mage Wars and how it just destroyed the whole disc feels like that almost, where it's just like, oh yeah, this is a thing. Don't ask me about it. They've brought up the Mage Wars before in the Light Fantastic, but we don't really get a sense of what they looked like until we start to see them happen again in this book. Because the idea is that Coin, who is this sorcerer, and he's only eight years old, which I actually think is very important to talking about him as a character. He is so powerful that his magic literally cannot be contained by reality. Like it just, you know, pulls everything up. It disrupts everything. And he believes under the influence of his staff, that is being haunted by his father, Ipslor. That seems like a very complicated, but it's actually not very complicated in the book. He basically thinks that all, like, the wizards and sorcerers should rule the disc, and so it ends up creating this division within the magical community and the Ankh-Morpork wizards under the leadership of Coin 
start this mage war process all over again, which Rincewind immediately recognizes. As soon as he sees it start, he's like, oh no, this is happening again. And it kind of ties back into the thing from The Life Fantastic, where they're talking about Galder Weatherwax and how Trimon is always trying to kill him and stuff, but it's like, uh, on Small God's Eve, however, it was considered extremely bad form to kill a brother wizard, and wizards felt able to let their hair down without fear of being strangled with it. Yeah, like, things like that, where it's like, wizards are just, like, one hair away from murdering one another at all times, but I thought it was really interesting. The, I suppose we call them the new Mage Wars, Mage War 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> Octarine Boogaloo? Yeah, Octarine Boogaloo. Also, that raises a question. What exactly is a mage? Because we've had wizards and witches, obviously, and Equal Rights brought up the concept of a warlock as an in-between the magic and gender binaries who are neither, you know, who are neither in the opinion of most practitioners on either side. But what is a mage? Because a mage isn't really a warlock. But, like, a mage just seems to be someone who uses magic, but then would that not make a mage also a witch? Technically. Maybe it's just men who use magic. Maybe we're going back to gender again. Yeah, the M in mage stands for men. (laughs) I like that. The whole, like, constructing a giant tower thing where it's like wizards have to build a tower, and it's like, oh, it goes back to my point about the staff that Esk carries around in equal rights where it's like it's the most phallic thing imaginable like towers as well like these giant pointy towers are just a giant phallic symbol as is a giant pointy everything to do everything we popularly conceive of wizards seems to be tied to the idea of masculinity and having a penis although witches also wear pointy hats so we could get a little in the weeds there if we try to go too far down that road yeah, no, but I'm not saying that they don't, but everything that we associate with a wizard ah, is tied I to... See. Yeah, it's like all thumbs are fingers, but not all fingers are thumbs. Well, and the staff is really important here, too, because it's Ipslor's old staff, but because Ipslor's soul, essence, whatever it is that death is still waiting for him to give up, is tied to the staff, it has like a mind of its own, right? It's able to perform magic on its own, as well as being a channel for coin to perform his magic. I thought the whole, like, the deal with death thing was interesting, where he's like, well, you can come take me when my son throws the staff away. Which, we all know that deals with death do not generally end well. Yeah, I think it was really interesting, that concept of, like, well, there needs to be some kind of, like, out for fate, for things to happen where it has to be something no matter how infinitesimal the odds are as long as there's like a non-zero chance of it happening then the universe can still run like that conversation with death where he's like well like things are inevitable but sometimes they just don't happen yeah he says sufficiently molecular that's like my favorite the thing that he says it's sufficiently molecular yeah is that small enough sufficiently molecular it says Death was mildly annoyed. He sighed again. People were always trying this sort of thing. On the other hand, it was quite interesting to watch, and at least it was a bit more original than the usual symbolic chess game, which Death always dreaded because he could never remember how the knight was supposed to move. And that, of course, is a reference to The Seventh Seal, the 1957 film where you have the, yeah, where you have the, the boy playing chess with Death. 
it's interesting the ways in which staffs and sorcerers work in this and the way that magic it like too much power is too, is bad for the wizards like they turn into terrible versions of themselves when they have access to this kind of power the worst part is when the narrator is telling us about the first mage wars the narrator says that was in fact the problem. All the wizards were pretty evenly matched and in any case lived in high towers well protected with spells, which meant that the most magical weapons rebounded and landed on the common people who were trying to scratch an honest living from what was, temporarily, the soil and lead ordinary, decent, but rather short lives. The idea is is that like the wizards, when they get too much power, they become terrible people who try to kill each other but they're not even really the ones who suffer the most. It's the people around them, the non-magical people who have to deal with like the after effects of all these spells. And we start to see that in places like Ankh-Morpork and Clatch and Quirm even, although we don't get to see it as much. Yeah, there's a great line. Oh, it's from one of my favorite sections in the book. Hold on, I'll find it now. So it's after the wizards come out into the marketplace in Ankh-Morpork. It's after the the wizards just made the pie. It wanted taste, said the wizard. There's plenty more where that came from. Wherever it came from, said Adrathy. He looked past the shiny pastry to the face of the wizard, and in the manic gleam of those eyes he saw the world turning upside down. He turned away a broken man and set out for the nearest city gate. As if it wasn't bad enough that wizards were killing people, he thought bitterly. They were taking away their livelihood as well. It's bad when wizards do this to themselves, but it's even worse what happens to the world around them. Which is why sorcerers shouldn't exist. More of Terry Pratchett's, like, thinly veiled class system criticisms. There's more than one way to kill a person where, like, yeah, you can go out and stab them or vaporize them with magic. But you can buy out their business and completely undercut their profits and means of putting food on the table. That's nearly worse because, you you know... If someone comes along and stabs you in the back or goes through a rampage in the city and chops off your head or crushes you with a building or whatever, like, it's like that. You're gone. You're dead. Whereas, like, you're going to have to go home day after day and look your family in the eye and say, like, no, sorry, we're all just eating. Everyone's eating magic pies now. No one has time for my handmade ones. Go like, well, what do we have to sell or give away to eat? And then, like, you know. If you can't do that, you end up starving and dying. Like, it's a much crueler way to kill someone. Because it's like, like, torture, if you get put on a rack, or if you, like, get strapped up and someone starts, like, cutting off tiny bits of you. I'm not here to defend torture, but, like, it's personal. At least someone is taking, like, a specific interest in torturing you. Whereas, like, this kind of indirect torture where they've just gone, like, I've completely sabotaged your entire life and livelihood and you you know it's gonna be nigh impossible for you to recover from this oh well you know like and they just go on with their day it, it you're less than a passing thought to them right and that comes up several times in this book this idea that for wizards wizards are the only people who matter there's this line where he's talking like you watch the the wizards like killing the guards in Clatch. When Rincewind's asked what kind of wizard he is, he says, the non-killing kind. It was the way they looked at them, as if they just didn't matter, said Nigel, shaking his head. That was the worst bit. 
like they're the only ones who exist now in their minds, right? Like the only people who matter are the magic people who can make pies out of thin air and do their spells and take over the world and fight. And the only enemies that matter are other people who can do that. Like the guards and the people who are on the ground, they don't matter, right? Their livelihood doesn't matter. Them as people don't matter. And that's like the that's like the most evil part of this. One of my favorite things is like, white men moralizing on why killing is wrong. <laughs> you know, as someone... Mm-hmm. I, I recently watched The Magnificent Seven, the 1967, I want to say. Which is so good. It's okay, yeah, it's a good film, but it's also, like, boring as all hell uh, in certain places. Like, <laughs> like it's a two-and-a-half-hour film or something, right? It's about the death of the Western. Yeah, it is, but, like, there's definitely a lot of the scenes where they're just training the villagers I feel like could have been condensed. That's what kind of bored me. But anyway, that whole thing, or, like, the the scene in Logan where Charles is talking about the film. Oh, what's the film called again? Sh- Shane. Shane, yeah. I was about to say Eric, but no, that's a Discworld book. <laughs> Yeah, where it's like, it's a terrible thing to live with a killer. Where Rinson's whole thing is he might be a shit wizard, but he's generally, like, the most noble wizard. For a lot of his appearances so far, and a lot of this book, his whole thing has been, well, he's the wizard who can't do any spells. But it's interesting in this moment that he chooses to define himself as, well, I'm someone who wouldn't do that, because, like, that's just abhorrent. He's the only one who knows what's happening is wrong. Like, as soon as he realizes that sorcery is back, he immediately is like, this is not good. This is going to bring back the mage wars. We are not going to survive this. Or even, I think the most heartbreaking thing is at the end when he asks, I think it's, I don't think it's coin he asks this of. I think it's another wizard where he says, what will be left when this is all over? Like, he is the only person who understands that what's happening is wrong. The rest of the wizards can't understand that or won't understand it. You know, where everyone is fighting for this gl- glorious end. Oh, I can quote Doctor Who now. Give me one second. It's from uh, Peter Capaldi's speech in the Zygon inversion, where it's like very much an anti-war speech. And yeah, it's a bit preachy, I guess. But it's also like one of the most amazing speeches I've ever heard. So at one point, the doctor says, ah, and when this war is over, when you have the homeland free from humanity, what do you think it's going to be like? Do you know? Have you thought about it? Have you given it any consideration? Because you're very close to getting what you want. What's it going to be like? Paint me a picture. Are you going to live in houses? Do you want people to go to work? What'll be holidays? Oh, will there be music? Do you think people will be allowed to play violins? Who will make the violins? Well, oh, you don't actually know, do you? Because just like every other tantruming child in history, Bonnie, you don't actually know what you want. So, let me ask you a question about this brave new world of yours. When you've killed all the bad guys, and it's all perfect and just and fair, when you have finally got it exactly the way you want it, what are you going to do with people like you, the troublemakers? How are you going to protect your glorious revolution from the next one? Like, Rincewin seems to be the only person who's like, what you're giving up here is, it's not worth what you're getting. Even though he's not very powerful, maybe it's because he's not very powerful that he can understand that. Whereas a lot of the rest of the wizards can't understand that. There's two things about the magic of sorcery versus wizardry that's interesting. The first one is when Coin asks Spelter if he agrees with him, and Spelter thinks to himself, 
The world had sorcery once and gave it up for wizardry. Wizardry is magic for men, not gods. It is not for us. There was something wrong with it, and we have forgotten what it was. I liked wizardry. It didn't upset the world. It fitted. It was right. A wizard was all I wanted to be. And then later, Rincewind kind of echoes that when he's trying to explain that using too much magic is really dangerous to Nigel and the Seraph. Magic uses people, said Rincewind hurriedly. It affects you as much as you affect it sort of thing. You can't mess around with magical things without it affecting you. I just thought I'd better warn you. Like a wine bottle, said Creosote. That drinks you back, said Rincewind. I think that that is two really good places where they explain why sorcery is so dangerous versus wizardry, which is powerful, but it has a lot more control and it fits more within that natural order. Wizardry is in the book. Like, obviously, we know headology is kind of like the common sense. And the power comes from within you, really. Like, that's what affects the change. And wizardry is, like, really, really basic stuff that you need to, like... Geometry! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Geometry <laughs> and really, like, when you get down to it, basic stuff... Uh, fundamental is the word I'm thinking of, not basic. Like, just when you get down to it, you break things down into its most essential things. Whereas sorcery is just, like, oh, who fucking cares anymore? You know, like... We've, right. We're just yeah. tapping into the primal energy of creation, you know, like, just cause. Right, and the idea is is that you can't do that without consequences. Like, there's n you can't shift reality in that way without yeah. either something from the outside trying to break in, like the dungeon dimensions, or it fundamentally changing you as a being. I, I want someone just really, like, disinterested and sassily just yelling at Coin, being like, Hey, fucker, you ever heard of the laws of thermodynamics? <laughs> which is something Terry Pratchett would know about as a nuclear engineer. Let's talk about Rincewind, because you already started to talk about him a bit. My personal feelings about this book were kind of similar to yours in that for about the first third, I was like, oh man, this has some really interesting stuff, but it's kind of boring. And then the middle third, I was like, okay, this has some interesting stuff, but I don't really care about Clatch. And then the last third of this book, I read in all one sitting, loved it. It's amazing. Like, I almost feel like there's one good idea in here, and he just kind of had to, like, take us on a journey through the first two thirds of the book before we could get to, like, this wonderful, wonderful sequence, which starts with Rincewind coming back to Ankh-Morpork and finding the library burned. From that point onwards in the book, I was just, like, riveted by Rincewind as a character. Definitely the first part of the book where he's just, like, talking to the Archchancellor's hat. Oh, yeah. Also, just the fact that, like, we're electing this new one really confirms the fact that, yeah, we never see Cut Angle again. R.I.P. Cut Angle. Bye, Cut Angle. And then very shortly afterwards, R.I.P. Wazy Goose, which is supposed to be his replacement. <laughs> but it definitely felt like the same old Rincewind <laughs> where he's talking to the hat and being like, well, no, I don't want to go because it's dangerous and that's not what I do. But then, like, he really sort of comes into his own when he meets... Nigel in Clatch, where he feels like he has to be kind of a protector to Nigel, who he's very much like um Carrot uh in Guards Guards. He does kind of feel that way. I was gonna ask you also what you thought of Nigel the Destroyer. <laughs> so this is a point that I made on an episode ten yeah, ten of Archive and Myers, where we were discussing the statement Vampire Killer, where it's very rare to see the name Nigel in fiction. It's always really weird then, because Nigel's not 
the most common of names either. And it's a name that I picked for myself. So it's very weird seeing like what people present as Nigel. In the Magnus Archives, the only character called Nigel is the brother of a guy called Trevor Herbert, who turns into a badass, a bit of a prick later on. He's his young brother who gets just brutally murdered by a vampire. It, like, yeah, I, I quite enjoyed it. Uh, I thought it was really funny, the fact that he's, he's the owner of the world's most polite battle cry. Just, <laughs> excuse me. Excuse me. Yeah, Nigel the Destroyer, son of Hairbutt, the provision merchant. <laughs> he wears, like, the loincloth, but also the woolen long underwear because his mother insisted. I also think that Rincewind does give us, like, I mean, classic Rincewind. Rincewind does not want to be the main character. We've talked about this before. He still doesn't want to be the main character in this book. So there's a lot of that where he's, like, complaining the whole time, even though he knows he's getting sucked into it. I love the description of him where it says many people who had got to know Rincewind had come to treat him as a sort of two-legged miner's canary and tended to assume that if Rincewind was still upright and not actually running, then some hope remained. Like, this idea that, like, he he never wants to be there, he never wants to be part of it, but he keeps getting pulled into it, but also he manages to survive it most of the time. I think that's his power, it's survivorship. It's very much like the Fall Out Boy song, Champion. If I can make it through this, I can make it through anything. And then as these books go on, his character seems to be, or made it through this thing in the past, so I can make it through this thing now. Like, especially at the end. At the end of The Light Fantastic, it didn't feel nearly as noble when he decided to go up. Because it was Two Flower who charged towards Trimon when he was possessed, and Rincewind went like, oh, guess I'd better follow. In the end of this one, like, Rincewind goes off on his own. He leaves behind the aid of the librarian Lord Veterinary and Waffles, he recognizes the fact that he's the only one who could possibly take Waffles. a stand against Coin. I think Rinswin is the archetypical good man. I think that's what his character... Reluctantly. <laughs> but reluctantly or not, I think he's the person who will do right when no one else will. You know, as long as he can complain about it beforehand. Oh my god, the section where he finds the library burned and he's just like scrabbling through the remains of it before he realizes that the books are okay. It's so heartbreaking. The scene where he's talking to the librarian and he basically is just like, what What am I supposed to do about this? He says, only it can't be me, you see. When I came here, I thought I could do something, but that tower, it's so big, it must be proof against all magic. If really powerful wizards won't do anything about it, how can I? I feel like for those people who try to do right in the world, who try to do the good thing, this is a really relatable thing to think. Like this idea of like, oh, well, climate change is just so huge. How could I possibly do anything about that? Or, you know, how could I possibly do something about COVID or systemic racism, you know, or something like that? It's just so big. And if the powerful people aren't doing anything about it, how could I possibly do anything about it? That was very compelling to me, especially because then he realizes, after the librarian threatens his hat, that that he is a wizard and that he is the per he, he's the only one, right, who can do this. So I think that's really powerful. Obviously, I'm someone who's very attached to her books, considering I'm sitting in my bookshed. The only book I've ever will willingly given up is a copy of Normal People, because I hate that book. I didn't sell it. I gave it gratis to my friend Mary Kate because I knew she liked the book and had lost her copy of it. It's the only book I've ever given away. Any other book that I've previously owned and no longer have, 
has been just gotten rid of because there was a young child without agency. And my parents were like, well, it's time to clear out. So, like, I'm very attached to books. And it's really interesting because the book I read before... So, like, I literally just finished it and then I started reading sources. Really interesting. It's this series set in an infinite library, which is in hell. I really recommend it. It's called The Library of the Unwritten. Yeah, so the basic conceit is they're in a library in hell, uh, but it's not a normal library. Everyone's, like, books that they started writing and never finished or, like, started coming up with the idea in their head is in this library. But anyway, I was reading the sequel. The sequel is called The Archive of the Forgotten. And there was a point in it where they're talking about books. Uh, so they're called Brevity and Probity. The oily feeling in Brevity's gut was a mix of horror and old wounds. There was some truth in what Probity said. There was always some truth. But Brevity had learned long ago that some truth was not all truth. Stop it. You weren't there. The fire. When it took the books. She gulped down the bile that threatened to rise and squeezed her eyes closed until her stomach behaved itself. You saw one fire, Probity said quietly. I've seen them all. Brevity opened her eyes to question that, but stopped. Probity was already lost in thought, looking into the shadows of the library, but seeing something else. They burned them first, the stories. Humans always come for the stories first. It's their warm-up before they start burning other humans. It's their first form of control, to burn the libraries, to burn the books, to burn the archives of a culture. Humans are the stories they tell. If you want to destroy your enemy, destroy their stories. Even if the people survive, it will be as if they never existed at all. Brevity chewed on her lip. Humans do a lot of terrible things during war. War, Probity said, and it was caught somewhere between amusement and agony. Shall we revisit the peacetime burning, then? Libraries censored and burned, the stories that died and were forgotten by accident, by neglect, by ignorance, by, and here, the most notorious peacetime murder of all, by piety. Books burned because... They threatened Bronze Age beliefs and scared old men in long robes. Yeah, it, although it's interesting that it's Ibslor through coin that says that the library must burn. And this is the, what, what's his name, Spelter? This is the point which makes him realize that, like, maybe what they're doing is wrong. And it's not even because he, he, he doesn't even consider the librarian who lives there until he goes and talks to him, you know, because it says... Oh, he knew the library was going to be burned and he had this sick feeling that it was him who was going to be made do it. So yeah, it starts off as a bit self-centered, but also like this needless destruction of culture and memory. But the image of all of the books flying out of the burning library into the Tower of Art is just like a wonderful image, like flying like birds and then the the librarian is like repairing the ones that get singed or get damaged in some way. The way that the librarian defends the library where he like jumps down behind them and like puts his hand over their mouth and like takes them away and stuff. <laughs> it reminded me of the old the old monkey joke, but I want to adapt it. Librarian. Did you hear about the librarian who is protecting the library? Wizard. No, I did not. Librarian, that is because I'm a silent ape. Muffled sounds of librarian violence. <laughs> He is very violent when it comes to protecting the library, but he also takes in the patrician who gets turned into a lizard by coin, although he doesn't remember it later. So we do get a slight veterinary. We also get introduced to Ruffles, 
who is a very important Discworld character, especially because I just love dogs. But I know in Guards Guards, they mentioned that Vetinari had a old terrier that he was quite fond of. And now we finally get introduced to that terrier. Oh, I just think Wuffles is a very good dog. He's a very good dog. He's a little slow and old, but he's a good dog. That's entirely my thoughts. It's just, oh, good dog. I think it's so adorable that the patrician who is this person who is terrifying to so many people clearly loves this dog like just like on a, like you know like unashamedly like the dog just sits with him all the time he's got his own little bed he goes with him like he tries to defend him he tries to pick him up at one point even bad people love their animals May I hate the Brits for a second Yes of course is this is this not a nannyog podcast even evil people uh, love their animals. And I hesitate to call Veterinary evil. He is one of my favorite characters as well. But the way that he's positioned is definitely morally neutral <laughs> in terms of, yeah. He's pragmatic is what he is. Right, exactly. But the way that he's often characterized is more like a Bond villain, even though he actually isn't a Bond villain. And the way he talks about him sitting on his lap and like, stroking waffles is very much like the Blofeld archetype. Yes. Yes, evil people who love their animals. <clears throat> the queen and her corgis. That's true. The patrician is way better than the queen, though. Let's let's just face it. Did you notice the Lord of the Rings reference in this? The scene with Vetinari sitting on the throne, or sitting on the chair in front of yeah, the throne? Yeah, very Denethor II. Yeah, I, I thought you would appreciate that. I also think the joke at the beginning when Kanina gets into the fight with the patrician's guard and Rincewind says, you can't, you're going against the man. I like that the man in this case is literally Vetinari, even though we generally think of the man as like the powers that be or whatever. It's just kind of a fun little joke. But the librarian takes care of both of them, especially Waffles. Like they're all barricaded into the library together. The librarian gets to continue being ponderous, but also he gets to be proactive. Veterinary is pragmatic, and the librarian in this book gets to be proactive. Like, we saw that kind of in Garrett's Garrett's, but also, like, this book came out before Garrett's Garrett's, where we get, like, a real sense of veterinary. The only sense we got was where he threatened Rincewind in Color of Magic before, and, like, again, the librarian helps... Uh, well, basically, like, kicks... Vimes's ass into gear. But again, Garrett's Garrett's was written and published after Sorcery. He almost serves the role of making Rincewind proactive, right? He's the one who gives Rincewind the, the fortitude and helps talk him into to doing his heroics at the end. Although I do love the scene <laughs> where everything becomes too much for the librarian for a moment, so he goes back into the library and pulls a blanket over his head. I feel like we've all been there in the last two years. Like, sometimes... Even though you know you have to do things, sometimes you just need a minute under a blanket to collect yourself. It's very much like the fainting couch type idea where it's like, oh, this has all become a little bit too much for me. Before the end of the book, Coin offers to change the librarian back into a human, and the librarian has a very visceral reaction to that. Yeah, it's not quite as bad as him being called the M-word, but like, it's definitely he doesn't want it. He And they've said it before. Is it in Garrett's Guards? I think at the start where they're, you know, this is someone who's happy as he is. I mean, and they talk about that a little bit here where they say, like, life is a lot simpler. 
for him. Like he enjoys the simplicity of being an orangutan. You know, he only has really two goals in life, protect the library and to eat bananas and be happy, right? Like he he doesn't like this whole existential angst of being a human. Let's talk about Coin because I know that you want to talk about him and I especially want to focus on his relationship to Ipslor via the staff and his relationship to Rincewind that we see later. I really liked it because the whole thing like about Coin is that he's railroaded into this because Ipslor has a bone to pick with the Unseen University. At the same time, it feels not developed enough because we don't spend enough time with Coin. I wanted to start that sentence off if I were writing this book, but I wouldn't be writing this book. And this book has already been written, and it's been written by someone who's much better at writing than I am. But if I were to make a similar idea to this, I'd have more... POV chapters of Coin, where it would show his interaction with the staff, because like it's really it's really good the bit at the end where this where he wants to throw the staff away, and the staff says to him, "You know the, you know the punishment, you know the price for boys who are like you know who misbehave, who don't do what they're told," and this is like a relationship dynamic which is built on trauma and abuse. But it nearly comes out of left field because all we get of the voice of Ipslor is the bit at the start where he just tells Death straight up, I'm going to like live his life for him and decide his fate. And then at the end, we get Ipslor being fought against. Nowhere in the middle, really, is there this thing. So I would have liked more dialogue and maybe like the hint of Coin's own subconscious even thinking well is this wrong and i think like the library would be a good point to do that you'd have the pov of like the wizards in general at the university where he'd give the order and then you'd have a pov chapter where spelter would go off and he'd have his revelation that burning the library is wrong and then you'd cut to a pov somewhere around the same time of coin talking to ipslor the staff and he'd say like well, do you think do you not think this is wrong or something i really wanted to like coin but we didn't spend enough time for me to like be convinced that he's a fully fleshed out character cuz he's given all this power like he's given unlimited power and he does a lot of stuff with it i don't know why is he doing that he's very creepy at the beginning but we he's impenetrable we can't really tell what's going on in his internal motivations or really separate out him versus the staff for most of the book but if you make it like out outwardly obvious that this staff is like something that everyone can pick up on as kind of being the one in charge there's only really two moments in the book and they're very blink and you'll miss them moments where it's implied that Ipslor is a very bad, abusive father, and that that's the dynamic that's happening. The first one is at the beginning when he says that he drove his sons away. Like this idea that his other sons, because he had seven other sons, which we never see in these books, but they're very powerful wizards in their own right. We never see them. But the idea is that there is a irrevocable rift between him and his other sons. And he says that's to make them strong, which is classic, like abusive father type of reasoning. But then we also get this one moment where Spelter, like, it's, he doesn't really describe what happens. We just get to see him, like, peeking into Coin's room and finding Coin mm. sobbing on his bed, right? He is clearly very distressed. Beyond that, like you said, we don't get any of Coin's motivations. We don't really get any 
thing else besi- besides these implications until the very end that Ipslor is manipulating both physically and emotionally coin and behaving in this very abusive way. I'd like to contrast that with Rincewind, who, when he shows up with his half brick in a sock, which is like, I loved that, love that bit. He doesn't even come with magic, like, because he knows he can't use the sorcery to fight, to fight coin, but he shows up with his half brick in the sock. And he's like, where's the sorcerer? Like, I'm going to stand against him. And then he realizes that the sorcerer is eight years old. Like, he says that he'd heard all these stories about how powerful the sorcerer was and how wicked the sorcerer was, but he'd never really, like, been told how old the sorcerer was. And his first response is not to go after Coin, but to say, you don't have to do this, which I just think is this really powerful moment where he says, you don't have to do this. You can just throw the staff away. It's such a short period of time that they get to have together, but it's such a cathartic period of time. I think it speaks an awful lot to Rinswin's growth as a character. At the end of it all, he's someone who can you can count on to do the right thing, to be kind, where Coin is an eight-year-old child. Yeah, like, who's visibly traumatized and doesn't know what... Like, I mean, there's a whole reason we don't give eight-year-olds the right to vote, and it's because... They're not fully formed human beings and kind of don't really know what they're doing and just copy their parents and the people around them. And they're highly impressionable. You know, like, imagine if you, like, this is the equivalent of, like, giving a toddler a gun and then just, like, showing the toddler how to shoot but not, like, instilling any gun safety in them. And so then you, like, walk into a Walmart and there's a child with, like, a pistol and he's holding the store up and wants to shoot everyone because he thinks that they're like lesser than him and then you're like what the fuck are you doing you know like don't you have cartoon network to be watching that's basically what rinsman does but he's so kind to him he recognizes what's happening and nobody else none of the other wizards treat him like he's an eight-year-old child it's just interesting that none of the wizards can recognize that because all they see him is as a power source, right? As somebody to either be scared of or somebody who can make them great, who can allow them this power. Rinswin just sees like a scared kid. He basically says just because it's prophesied or whatever, that doesn't mean anything. Like you can choose not to be this way. It's like no one had ever told him that before. Well, because like Coin is a child who's unused to kindness. Ipslor says it to death, I'm pretty sure, or whatever. He's talking about his sons, and it's like, well, you know, what's the deal with your other sons? And he's like, well, they wouldn't do what I wanted. So, like, screw them. Right. Drinswin, like, recognizes the pieces that are broken inside himself, or he's made recognize them, and then, like, that allows him to be empathetic. And there's a lot in this book about... Rincewind's identity as a wizard like people keep saying well why do you have to wear the hat Nigel at one point is like well you could just take off the hat and not be a wizard and that's like anathema to Rincewind he is a wizard that is like a key part of his identity despite the fact that he's not very good at it despite the fact that he keeps getting drawn into these adventures despite himself his identity is tied up to being a wizard even though he is not a famous wizard or a particularly great wizard or anything like that. He just has a very badly misspelled wizard on his hat. And it's an interesting callback to, or call forward to, I guess, pyramids of all books where the concept of like being a, a stranger in a familiar land, where it's like, here are the things that you know about yourself. And it's like, do they really line up with what you A, believe and B, think you are? Like Rincewind 
is a wizard, but he can't do magic. And he, the only way he's identified as a wizard is his belief that that's what he is or can be. And similarly, I like that's mirrored in Coin, who is the child of prophecy. He's the sorcerer, wizard squared, you know, and so he has to do something great. Whereas, like, what does he want to do? He probably just wants to, like, play Legos or some shit. Like, he's eight. Leave him, al- leave him alone. <laughs> yeah. Right. He's a child. And that gets echoed, too, when the ice giants are released because coin imprisons the gods in like a little pearl reality so the ice giants are released so the apocalypse happens and nigel like tries to talk sense into the ice giants and basically says well why do you have to do it and they're like because we have to but what you know you could just not do it like this idea of you you know that you could just like choose to do something other than what other people have told you that you have to do I don't think I noticed that the first time. The W-I-Z-Z-A-R-D. I wonder, is this a coin nod to the the English band Wizard, which is spelt with two Zs, who are f- most famous for their song, I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day, and not for the fact that they're formed by the co-founder of the ELO? I have no idea. I had never heard of that before. I mean, Pratchett mainly just keeps saying that he's a bad speller, but it's quite possible that that's a reference. I mean, they were active in the 70s, so that would make sense. Hebrews 1140, the sixth track off of the Mountain Goats 2009 album, The Life of the World to Come. <laughs> so it's like Death, Air, and Doom, whatever. It's when the world's gone cold into the chorus. It gets dark, and then I feel certain I'm going to rise again. If not by faith, then by the sword, I'm going to be restored. Take to the hills, run away. I'm going to get my perfect body back someday, if not by faith, then by the sword. Your life doesn't line up with where you think it's going to be or where you want it to be. I think it's a relevant lyric to like anyone who's experiencing a mid-quarter, three-quarter decade life crisis, you know, where it's like, well, things aren't as good as you thought they would be. You went to this new place, you become king of a kingdom, and it's not what you thought it was going to be. Well, you know fight with whatever you got get your perfect body you know you're gonna make it sometime that ties into what happens with the wizards at the end when rincewind is like why won't any of you help him he helped you he gave you everything that you wanted and one of the wizards says and we may never forgive him this idea of like this is actually not what we wanted we thought we wanted all this power and the ability to change the world but actually, we did not want this. This is not what we thought it would be. I have to mention before we move on with Rincewind, uh, two things. First of all, Rincewind's last words, because at one point he says he, they're in the dungeon dimension and he decides to to draw the things, the creatures away from the portal so Quinn can go back through it and seal it. It was, he thought, time for a few last words. What he said now was likely to be important. Perhaps they would be words that would be remembered and handed down, and maybe even carved deeply in slabs of granite. Words without too many curly letters in, then. I really wish I wasn't here, he muttered. (laughs) That is such a Rincewind line. Like, for his last words, I really wish I wasn't here. (laughs) Because he's doing, like, this such this noble thing, but he can't help but complain about it just a little bit at the end. But, yeah, he apparently dies. Or disappears into the dungeon dimension at the end of this book. He sends Coin back through. He sacrifices himself to get Coin back through. The last thing we see is the luggage jumping into the rift after Rincewind because the luggage will not abandon its owner. 
And that's it. That's the last we see of them in this book. How did that make you feel? I was, I, I cried at that. You did? Yeah. Also, later on, like at the end where they have the hat and it's so like, it's in a complete utter state of disrepair, but it's there because they, they're holding out hope that Rinson will come back. And they say, a wizard can always be sure to co- like to return for his hat. We'll always be sure to come back for his hat, whatever the specific line is. And it reminded me of the book Bridge of Clay, first of all, which makes me cry a lot. The whole ending of it is part of the epilogue is that one of the brothers just basically goes missing and then eventually shows up. And, you know, a Dunbar boy can always be certain to return home. But also, this post that I have saved in a folder just called God, I'm fucking crying. This is the only thing in it. It's a post that uh, Neil Gaiman posted on Instagram on 12th of December 2017 and it's a look at the practical sets they were building for the Good Omens show of uh, Aziraphale's bookshop. In Aziraphale's bookshop there's a little area of books by one of his favourite authors and a hat that one of the customers left behind and will be back for one day. And it's all the Discworld books and it pans around and it has Terry Pratchett's signature hat hanging up on the hat rack. And it's like it reminded me of that and it reminded me of the fact that Sir Terry is dead, which made me cry a lot. Yeah. But also, like, Rincewind kind of is a Pratchett stand-in, I think, out of, most out of all the characters bar death. Because death, well, okay, so in terms of characters that Terry Pratchett is, it goes, number one, the narrator, who I don't think is Pratchett specifically, but is close to Pratchett. Then number two is death. And then number three is Rincewind. But Rinswin is the most like Pratchett out of all the human characters, I think, that we've encountered. You know, because he's kind of like a slightly magical older man who's very attached to a large floppy hat. Yeah, that's very Pratchett. They both have hats that are part of their defining looks. Yeah. You remember that weird plot point where Rinswin, like, temporarily believes he's in our world, uh, where he's Dr. Rinswand? <laughs> yes. What was his job again? This is not like a leading question. I'm trying to remember. What was his job again? Wasn't he, like, a physicist? Yeah, uh, very Pratchett. Something to do with, like, nuclear energy or something, which is kind of, like, I guess what they're akinning to, like, the power of magic and the power of dragons, which stem from um, imagination and stuff. But it's very much like Sir Terry being a nuclear engineer. Wait, can I just say, this is another recurring segment. This is yet another book which teases me about Source. <laughs> yes. The river it mentioned, sort. Yeah, the river sort that the uh, luggage like basically tries to drown itself in because it's sad that like Kanina doesn't return its affections or whatever. That was a weird plot point. But it's like, stop referencing sort if you're not going <laughs> to show me sort. Every single book we've read has referenced sort in one way or another. And we've never seen <laughs> And I think at this stage now it would be really funny. I think it'd be really funny if it turned out that we never ever saw sort. And it was just this running joke. I'm not going to tell you. We'll, we'll see. Mainly because I don't actually remember. So we'll have to see. Yeah. Where we go with that. So I guess actually, since you mentioned the luggage, let's talk very briefly about the luggage. I am in love with the dedication of this book. Many years ago, I saw in Bath a very large American lady towing a huge tartan suitcase very fast on little rattly wheels which caught in the pavement cracks and generally gave it a life of its own. At that moment, the luggage was born. Many thanks to that lady and everyone else in places like Power Cable, Nebraska, who don't get nearly enough encouragement. This book does not contain a map. Feel free to draw your own. 
What a dedication. Obviously, there is a book called The Map of Discworld, one of those companion books he did. But yeah, it really is like, it feels like he's handing the thing off and acknowledging the fact that like the book, once it's in the reader's hands, is as much theirs as it is the author's. And Seventh World is powered by imagination. Like, the dragons that I mentioned, like, just there. But everything runs on this, like, tacit understanding that the reader understands just how bizarre that everything really is. And that's what, like, once you've acknowledged that, that's how Discworld works. So, like, there's no map. Feel free to draw your own. It's like, well, you know, interpret this how you will. This is your book. Have fun with it. It's also an acknowledgement that the Discworld is closer to magic than it is to science, right? Like, our reality is closer to a more scientific way of the world working, whereas the Discworld is more towards magic. And they've the narrator has made that distinction very clear many times. Every single book needs to bring up the fact that, like, light works differently when it travels through a strong magical field. Speaking of magical fields, the luggage made of sapient pear wood gets its own sort of emotional arc in this book because it follows Rincewind and Kanina to Clatch, sort of falls in love with Kanina, which Rincewind sort of feels because it has this psychic connection. And so he, Rincewind for a minute thinks that he's in love with Kanina until he realizes that those emotions are coming from the luggage. Kanina, like, very offhandedly, like, like, kind of, like, pushes the luggage away and says, like, go away. And so the luggage, filled with the, the sting of betrayal, <laughs> goes on, like, this, like, personal journey of grief, right? Where it tries to drink itself into a stupor. It tries to drown itself. It goes into this desert where it gets attacked by all these, like, different mythical creatures that it then kills. And then finally decides to go back to Rincewind. No, I just, like, this whole, like, love Lauren, oh, sad. It's just boring. I don't like it. I don't like it in any media. But any, I'm not a fan of, like, romance in books and TV and films and shit. So, like, I think maybe that's just an extension of that, where it's like, I don't like seeing it being built up, especially when it's not the focus of the book. And then when you devote a large portion of a book to, or even a small portion like it is in this one, like a character being sad that I I don't care. I'm sorry, I just I don't care. And maybe that's a bit callous or people might people might think I'm an asshole. I'm sorry. I like I just can't connect to it. I can't fathom it. I mean that's fair. I mean everybody has different things they connect to. I thought it was very sad and very, very funny at the same time. I especially liked when it's like the descriptions of it having its heart broken and then getting extremely like angry and it starts to develop a headache and so it gets angry and goes after that the hat the arch chancellor's hat because it sees it as like to blame for the predicament that it's in we do get some really great moments with the luggage though i really love the one at the beginning where it's like hibernating on top of rincewind's wardrobe and the one where it describes it as the luggage didn't have any features at all apart from a lock and a couple of hinges, but it could stare better than a rock full of iguanas. The fact that he manages to give the luggage such personality, even though it doesn't talk, it doesn't have a face. I just think that's brilliant. What about Kanina? What did you think about her, the daughter of Cohen the Barbarian, who we met in The Light Fantastic? I didn't... I, I was like, okay, she's just kind of going to be this like underdeveloped side character and then it's also like i don't know like 
Kanina, <laughs> oh, I'm gonna, oh, I'm gonna really out myself here. I, Kanina, I, I'd like Kanina beat the shit out of me. <laughs> you know? I mean, right? She is underdeveloped, but she's still pretty cool. I'm like, I don't know. I really connected with her whole, she just wants to be a hairdresser. Cause you see that a lot in, especially like to do with warriors, or I suppose like in the modern, like non-fantasy sense, like in, in fantasy books, you have like, oh, this is the great warrior and he's raised his, eldest son to follow in his footsteps as a knight or a barbarian or whatever and you see this with like how nigel is raised where he's reading cohen's book about how to be a barbarian but also like in the modern world with hitmen and contract killers like how in the suicide squad both the characters of Bloodsport and peacemaker were raised from birth by their parents to be killers their fathers specifically which is something we see as well with coin actually raised from birth to be a certain way kanina also gets that moment it's a bit affirming to see in the next book after equal rights because equal rights felt very much like gender essentialist whereas this one is like well how you're born isn't necessarily how you're meant to be or how you see yourself is the most true reflection of who you are it kind of reminds me of that scene in Tangled where they go to the inn and meet all of the barbarians and thieves, and then they're all scared, but then they realize that all of these people actually don't want to be barbarians. They all have like their own dreams, and they all start singing, I have a dream. That's what this reminds me of. I quite like that about Kanina, but also, like, I'd let her beat me up. Yeah, she is way more interesting to me than the last underdeveloped female character that we saw, which was in Pyramids. I think that she's great. I love that eventually Rincewind stops worrying about her because he knows that she'll just get herself out of any situation that she finds herself in. She's like this master thief. She and she keeps complaining that it's about it's hereditary, hereditary, right? When she talks about Cohen, I like it even when she talks about Cohen, who is a character we've established. And there's this really funny scene where they're cornered by the archers in Clatch, and she says. My father always said that it was pointless to undertake a direct attack against an enemy extensively armed with efficient projectile weapons. Rincewind, who knew Cohen's normal method of speech, gave her a look of disbelief. Well, what he actually said, she added, was never enter an arse-kicking contest with a porcupine. I like that because it's a callback to a character we know. We get that whole thing in The Light Fantastic with Cohen and like his teeth and he finally gets his dentures and all of that. Oh, I have a question for you, Nigel. Actually, it's a two-part question. Okay. This is me being a ignorant American and having to ask a question about UK. Is it the gas? No, although I would love for you to talk about that. Actually, why don't you talk about that first, and then I'll ask you my question. I was really excited about this. Also, I thought I thought the uh, comparison to Rinsen thinking it was a, a goose they were referring to, geese, plural. And then especially after Rinson is gone, I thought it was quite touching how they're talking about the bird, flock of birds rising, you know, and Rinson would have loved, like, you know, would have basically tickled him pink to know that they're, they're called geese. In Irish uh, Celtic mythology, geese is kind of this obligation or kind of like a prophecy nearly, or, but also like a curse. It's kind of all three where it's like, an obligation you're put under that you have to like do certain things or you can't do certain things and if you break them you basically like die or something really bad happens to you uh and there's this story i can't remember what 
folklore story it is. Person under it is like placed under a whole bunch of uh, yasana, and he basically can't do anything without breaking one of them. I had to like look up for comparisons, and it says like the the one in Macbeth about how Macbeth can only be killed by someone not of woman born, or how the witch king of Angmar in Lord of the Rings can't be killed by mortal man are kind of like that. Um, also, if you're familiar with anime, Code Geass, Lelouch of the Rebellion, uh, is liter- literally is named after it, um, and the power that Lelouch uses of Geass is to force people into doing things for him. So it's still it's still extant, but it's it's an Irish word uh, and a Celtic concept that I think is really interesting because nothing bad is going to happen to Nigel if he doesn't obey this. Yes, but it's the cultural... It's a very Irish thing as well. The idea of cultural institutions or cultural concepts as in- institutions, uh, like, having control over them, and that's what Nigel feels. Whenever I talk about him, it feels like I'm talking in the third person. That's what Nigel feels. He believes that he has to cleave to this idea of being the perfect barbarian. But, like, nothing's going to happen if he doesn't. But he's afraid of what he'll be without the identity of him as a barbarian. And that's what frightens him. Now, you had a question for me? My two-part question is, so on page 208 of my book, there is this really, really wonderful passage about Rincewind. And I'm, I'm going to read the whole thing, and then I have a question, and I'm wondering if you'll know immediately what I'm talking about. High over the Circle Sea, Rincewind was feeling a bit of an idiot. This happens to everyone sooner or later. For an example, in a tavern, someone jogs your elbow and you turn around and give a mouthful of abuse to, you become slowly aware, the belt buckle of a man who, it turns out, was probably hewn rather than born. Or a little car runs into the back of yours and you rush out to show a bunch of fives to the driver, who, it becomes apparent as he goes on unfolding more body like some horrible conjuring trick, must have been sitting on the back seat. What is show a bunch of fives? And is this a Britishism or a UKism? Never heard this. But a bunch of fives presume I at a guess I would presume that it's referring to the digits on your hands to show a bunch of fives. I don't know, but like sh- showing your hands with like all five digits clearly displayed, which is how I would imagine showing fives. I just, I knew it was probably something rude. I just had no idea what it is. But I was reading it and I love that section. It goes on to, to say basically like, this is how you feel when the waves of anger have like brought you up the beach of retribution, but you've like gone too far because you have no backing. And it's so funny, but I just couldn't figure out what that phrase meant. Oh yeah. Well, the beach of retribution is the beach that makes you old. I was talking so much about the <laughs> beach that makes you old in the car today. Because my brother was like, what the fuck are you talking about? So I had to explain (laughs) old the movie as a concept. There are two locations in this book. And none of them are the beach that makes you old. None of them are the beach that makes you old. There's Ankh-Morpork, more specifically the Unseen University. We learned two things about the Unseen University and its surroundings in this. One is the Tower of Art is older than the Unseen University, and nobody really knows where it came from. But the Unseen University and Ankh-Morpork 
were sort of built around Is it. this ever addressed? I don't know. I don't remember, but I do not think so. I think this is a fascinating idea, and I don't think Discworld is the type of series that lends itself to what I think fascinates me about this. The whole concept of like something being older than it should be in and especially like an urban fantasy setting where it's like, well, where did it come from? And like the investigation into that, I think really fascinates me. Like, especially with like magical underworlds in post-industrial magic cities. So either like Chicago in the Dresden Files or like New York slash London in the Mortal Instruments Infernal Devices series or somewhere like Ankh-Morpork, you know, where it's like the investigation into that and like, I'm, I'm a sucker for precursor. Actually, that's a fun other example of where Gias is used. Gias is a precursor word used in Halo. Yeah, this whole thing of like, well, where did it come from? Like, I'm a really big fan of the meta plot of the Assassin's Creed series. I have no idea why. But like, I think the whole plot about the Isu artifacts and the first civilization is really fucking interesting. But that's just because of like, I'm really into the exploration of things being older than they should be and precursor races. So... Yeah, it's just sort of an illusion to a world that's perhaps older than this. It also reminds me of Mass Effect, the, the series of games that I love so much, because one of the big drivers of the plot is this idea that humans were able to jump ahead in their technology because they based it on a race that was much older and has died out. And then the rest of the series actually sort of explores that idea. Like, is it actually good that we based all our technology on this race or is it bad? Like, like all these artifacts that you find. So, yeah, it's very interesting stuff. But we get introduced to Seder Square, which is this place that's right outside of the university where like kind of this market, this outdoor market has grown up where they're selling all of these artifacts and food. It's the place that you mentioned earlier where... The wizard makes the pie appear out of thin air. This is a really complex reference that Terry Pratchett is making. Are you aware of the Seder Square? I know what the Seder Square is, yes, and I hate it because it's the f- it's the basis of the film Tenet, which is a film I hate. Just on references in that scene, it's a weird, like, reverse. I don't want to say perversion, because that's not, not what Discworld concerns itself with. But it's a weird, like, inversion, to go back to Sator of the scene where Jesus overturns the the stalls in the temple. Yes. Where they've made a marketplace of a temple, and now the wizards are making a temple of a marketplace. So for those of you who are listening, look up the Seder Square so you can see what it looks like. But basically, it refers to a magic square. Get it? It's a magic square. It dates back to the time of the spread of Christianity in Europe, but Seder literally means sower or farmer. And the square, which is a square of different words, is palindromatic in all directions. So you get like different Latin words, but they're all like, depending on which way you read it, you can get different sentences from it. It's really fascinating, but I just think it's a, a really interesting reference that Pratchett has made here. So the other place we get is Clatch, which... This is the first time we've seen Clatch, but it is not the last time that we will see Clatch. Oh, joy. So here's the thing about Clatch. I had a realization while I was reading this, and I'm really interested to know what you think. So as as I was reading it, I'm like, oh, gosh, this seems like more Orientalist stereotypes, except for, you know, it's the traditional, like, here's some, like, Orientalist ideas about what the Middle East is like, but also we're going to, like, undercut it with a lot of humor. Like, these are actually just people living their lives in this place, kind of like what we had in 
pyramids in the in the kingdom of jelly baby but i started to realize when i was reading the poetry that creosote is doing and like the way that he's created like this wilderness in the middle of his palace that this actually might be making more fun of the way that the romantics in the 19th century wrote about the middle east than it is actually making fun of the middle east itself mainly because a lot of creosote's poetry is based on Edward Fitzgerald's translation of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Have you ever studied the Rubaiyat? No, I have not. Uh, I think that's a failing of our English syllabus, is the fact that like it's not even offered in any of the modules, as far as I know. The really funny thing about the 19th century is that the Romantics, like all of these people, Percy Shelley, Byron, like Edward Fitzgerald, uh, Burton, who did this terrible, terrible translation of Thousand and One Nights, they were obsessed with the Orient, right? Like the the Middle East, like this fictional place where like all of these brown people lived these like exotic and extravagant lives, right? And so you get a lot of really terrible stereotypes from that. But they were also obsessed with the poetry of a lot of different Middle Eastern poets. And I use the word Middle East because they often confused cultures. So like I can't point you to a specific culture because they weren't actually that concerned about like a specific culture when they were appropriating and discussing a lot of these things. But the thing is, is that when they did these translations, they weren't real translation. They were what they thought that a Middle Eastern translation would be like. So when Edward Fitzgerald did the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, it's actually more of what Edward Fitzgerald thought that the poetry should be like rather than what the poetry actually would translate to. So when I was reading Creosote's poetry, like when he says, the book of, a book of verses underneath the bough, a jug of wine, a loaf of bread, and thou, that's almost exactly out of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, the translation by Edward Fitzgerald. So that made me think, maybe this is actually a parody of the way that the Romantics in the 19th century thought the Middle East was like, rather than an actual statement about the Middle East. How I read his poetry seemed very much like Homeric poetry, especially the one that especially stuck out for me was when he talked about Rosy Fingered Dawn, which is like directly from, it's an epithet from the Odyssey. And the way he talks about Canina with just the most, oh, they're so disgusting. I hate them. The way he talks about Canina. The way he talks about her with epithets is very much like uh, Homer the Homeric tradition of, po of poetry. So that's what I thought it was. Yeah, it, it, there is kind of that that element to it. The And this comes from a biblical background. The way he talks about, like, thy hair is a flock of goats, that's an actual quote from the Song of Solomon, <laughs> from the Bible. Like, if you read the Song of Solomon, it's full of this type of language. Like... Thou hast doves' eyes within thy locks, thy hair is a flock of goats, thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins, which feed among the lilies. People don't realize how sexy Song of Solomon is. Like, they tend to, like, skip that one, but it's a lot of really graphic descriptions of women's bodies. To me, that read as, like, we're, we're talking about an older way, a romantic way of envisioning a place in the Middle East that isn't actually real. But... The problem is, is that that's not clear from a first reading. Like, you would have to be very familiar with 19th century romantics to understand that that's what he's doing here. So the question is, is he making fun of Orientalism by reproducing Orientalism? Like, where's the line here? I don't know, because this didn't occur to me. So I, 
I don't know. Like, I suppose on the one hand, part of me wants to give Pratchett the benefit of the doubt because I don't feel like Pratchett intentionally, like, portrays uh, like negative stereotypes. You know, like out of a place of malice or prejudice. But at the same time, like, I don't know enough about this to comment either way. Another one. Uh, so at one point, the seraph says, get up for the morning in the cup of day hath dropped the spoon that scares the stars away. That's a parody of the Rubiot. Awake for the morning in the bull of the night hath flung the stone that puts the stars to flight. So there's a lot of that going on here. Again, it's like, though, if you don't make that clear or if people aren't aware of what's happening, reads as very, very problematic. We have had a mixed bag of endings when it comes to Pratchett. We've really liked some of them. We've really disliked some of them. What did you think about this ending where Rincewind and the luggage disappear into the dungeon dimensions? Coin puts everything back right at the end, but then he leaves. He goes to his own dimension because sorcery can't really contain be contained in the world, right? It says sorcerers can only wear the world for a while. They can't live there. Everyone kind of forgets what happens, except for the librarian. And then there's sort of like this hopeful moment at the end where it sort of teases that maybe, maybe we'll have a return. I quite liked it. I liked the whole coin sets things to rights and makes everyone forget about his existence. And it's like, because it's the only version of the it was all a dream conjecture that I'll accept. It was all a dream. It feels like a cheat. But whereas... You've been convinced that it was all a dream after the fact. I can get behind that. I'm not advocating for gaslighting. I'm advocating for, like, magical memory wiping for, like, a specific plot purpose. Like, this one is especially, I suppose you'd call it noble if um, preventing just the sheer and utter destruction of reality. I liked Rincewind's sacrifice for his character, and I liked things being set to right by coin, and the fact that the librarian refuses refuses to be turned back to a human but agrees to keep coin secret i find memory wiping to be very problematic from an ethical point of view because there's a lack of consent a lot of times um, and i i hate that kanina and nigel forget who rincewind is basically. oh yeah no like, shit it's almost obviously like it never happened so that's kind of sad i will say though that i understand that the events of the book like all of the sorcery and the mage wars part two and the bending of reality that might be a little bit too much for most people to even really remember on their own so that it might just seem all like a dream in a lot of ways even if coin did nothing so that that kind of makes sense to me you like the thing like the mist like i'm specifically talking about like taking the name from the mist in the percy jackson series that stops mortals from perceiving like the things that the gods are doing like that kind of thing yeah yeah because there's a lot of that in fantasy and and mythology so like it would make sense it reminds me of the very end of the the wheel of time series and i won't tell you how because i know sam is reading one of them every once in a while and also now that the show is out it seems very weird that i would like just go out to spoil the very ending of it but it reminds me of it I really just liked reading the uh, the Ice Giants. They were very fun to read in my head. The book basically tells us that when children make snowmen, they're like representations of ice giants. Kind of like jack-o'-lanterns are supposed to be like representations of like demons or whatever. So like, I appreciate that. Death sightings. There are four death sightings in this book. The first one 
is, of course, at the very beginning when he comes to collect Ipslor, but Ipslor escapes with him by making that deal. The next one is when the Mage Wars Part 2 is about to begin and Rincewin just for a minute sees death. Like he's running a wet his scythe down a whetstone and gave him a nod of acknowledgement as between one professional and another. He put a bony digit to his lips or rather to the place where his lips would have been if he'd had lips. All wizards see death, but they don't necessarily want to. And so it's just this very brief moment where Rincewind sees him. This really reminded me of your uh, Rincewind and death enemies to lovers. Like, it almost felt like a wink here. Like, where, where like, the Mage Wars is about to start and Rincewind just sees him for a second. Yeah, I ship it. Yeah, I ship it too. I think that's great. Oh my god, their ship name can be Deathwind. Deathwind! That's a great ship name. The third time we see Death, the third Death sighting, is when he is in a pub outside of Quirm with the other three horsemen of the apocalypse. They're all having a drink. And then, of course, Conina, Nigel, and Creosote steal the other three horsemen's horses. And so Death has to ride out alone. On Binky. On Binky. So the rest of the... Did you know that they were stealing the horsemen's horses when they described Binky? They don't actually say Binky's name, but then they describe him. I clocked it afterwards. Yeah, like, I read the description, and then I was like, oh, they're just... They're just stealing some horses. And then I, like, went out to make a cup of tea, and I went, wait a minute! (laughs) (laughs) That was Binky! And, of course, the other three horsemen get super drunk in the... In the pub, because they can't. I I laughed so hard when they're trying to remember the song, and Pestilence is singing like "ba ba ba." Well, no, they don't all get drunk. Famine just has a bunch of peanuts, which I thought was very funny. Fifteen more bowls of peanuts, please. It felt very much like the scene they're riding to the village in Good Omens, where the horsemen show up at a pub, and Death is already there playing the trivia game the trivia like arcade machine and we've already like commented how death feels like the same death in good omens as in discworld but now it seems that like the horsemen all were fairly similar so it seems very much like gaiman must have read uh discworld and gone like oh horsemen oh you've got this terry right have at it and then just like did something else well, this is not the last time we'll see the horsemen. In fact, the horsemen have a much bigger role in a later book. So it'll be interesting to see because Death basically kind of leaves them to their own devices. He's like, you'll figure it out. And the last time we see Death is, of course, on top of the tower when he comes to take Ipslor, finally. I, you know, I finally have you, Ipslor the Red. So that's our, our final Death sighting for this book. Yeah. Also, can I just say, Ipslor the Red, the most wizard name. Oh, yes, 100%. Very wizardy. Yeah, very Gandalf the Grey. So the first footnote that we get is on page eight of my edition, where they're describing the hat of the Archchancellor of the Unseen University. It was pointy, of course, with a wide floppy brim, but after disposing of these basic details, the designer had really got down to business. There was gold lace on there and pearls and bands of purest vermine and sparkling onk stones. Footnote. Like rhinestones, but different river. When it comes to glittering objects, wizards have all the taste and self-control of a deranged magpie. So first of all, that of course tells us that wizards really like opulent ways of dressing, but it's another meta reference, right, to our world, because the Rhine, the river, does not exist in the Discworld, but we're being given a reference to rhinestones from the Rhine. Nigel, what was your favorite footnote in this book? 
the one about uh, the study of genetics. So the study of genetics on the disc had failed in an early stage when wizards tried the experimental crossing of such well-known objects as fruit flies and sweet peas. Unfortunately, they didn't quite grasp the fundamentals and the resultant offspring, a sort of green bean thing that buzzed, led a short sad life before being eaten by a passing spider. And I think that's really funny because that's a reference to Gregor Mendel, the father of genetics, who he studied genetic distribution by looking at two examples, one of fruit flies and one of sweet peas. But I like the Discworld version of that as, well, they just decided that we'll study it by crossing them, which is like one step away from what Mendel actually did. I don't know how familiar you are with Mendel. Like, I just don't know what the American biology system is like, so I don't know whether they'd, like, focus on the laws of segregation and difference or whatever the fuck they're called. I knew he was a eugenist, so... Yeah. You know, I'm writing about that currently in my dissertation, so that's that's primarily my focal point with Mendel. But yes, I am very aware of, like, the way he discovered genetics. It's funny, because my favorite footnote also has to do with genetics. <laughs> because it's it's not that one, but it's the one where they're talking about the inspiration, like the, the sleet of inspiration through the universe and how it's very easy for it to hit the wrong head at the wrong time. And it reminded me a lot of Huel from Weird Sisters and the way that he keeps getting the inspiration from different plays and different things and they're just slightly wrong. But in this one, it's the shape of DNA, it is popularly said, owes its discovery to the chance sight of a spiral staircase when the scientist's mind was just at the right receptive temperature. Had he used the lift, the whole science of genetics might have been a good deal different. Footnote. Although possibly quicker and only licensed to carry 14 people. I don't know why that made me laugh. The idea of instead of DNA being a helix, it's a, a lift <laughs> that's only licensed to carry 14 people. Yeah. But there you go. That's my favorite footnote. What's something that made you laugh out loud? I, I think you're going to have to go with the horseman. The horseman getting drunk. I just really like that. <laughs> it's a funny portrayal of being drunk, whereas like, the the uh, seraph when he gets drunk he just becomes like a really creepy pervy man I don't like that so as yeah. well it was like well you know here's a fun like they're having fun which is really they're they're rabble rousing they're carousing that's you know like that's good I like that oh yeah okay so war gets a bloody mary of course pestilence gets a small eggnog with a cherry in it and death gets a port wine, and then famine gets peanuts. I laughed a lot during this book, but I loved the scene where Carding and Spelter are talking about the hat, like making a new Archchancellor's hat and how it just becomes the hat by virtue of it belonging to an Archchancellor. And he says, fundamental basis of wizardry is that. Carding paused dramatically, plonked the hat box into Spelter's arms. Cogitum ergot hato, you might say. Spelter had made a special study of old languages and did his best. I think, therefore, I am a hat? If you've studied Descartes, which I have, and I dislike Descartes immensely, that's hilarious. I love the think, therefore, I am a hat. What is the thing that made you think in this book? The thing that made me think, I'm going to go, I was going to go with uh, the wizards are like, well, we want, we don't know whether we wanted things changed, but maybe just moved around slightly. That first one, we were like, well, you can go and change these, a whole bunch of things about your life. You know, like you can go and 
dye your hair or give yourself bangs or get a tattoo, but it's not really going to address the real problem that's causing your, uh, the real issue that's causing all your problems now, is it? I think for me, it's when they're in the dungeon dimensions and it's this really touching scene between Coin and Rincewind. Coin did so on the hem of his robe and then shook Rincewind's hand solemnly. If you ever, he began, that is, you're the first. It's been a great. You see, I never really. His voice trailed off and then he said, I just wanted you to know that. There was something else I was trying to say, said Rincewind, letting go of the hand. He looked blank for a moment and then added, Oh yes, it's vital to remember who you really are. It's very important. It isn't a good idea to rely on other people or things to do it for you, you see. They always get it wrong. And that kind of goes back to what we've been talking about during this whole episode, but it's this very touching moment where he basically tells Coin, like, you you have to make the decision of who you are yourself. You can't rely on other people to tell you who you are, which is, I think, really great in terms of summing up maybe one of the major themes of this book yeah that and the thing i read earlier about the wizards like if more powerful wizards couldn't do it then why why how could i do it i just think that that's such a great line someone's got to take a stand next episode after seven books we are finally going to return to the death series with reaper man and our first foray into the 90s disc world are you excited for reaper man nigel i am Oh boy. <laughs> Where can people find you online and on their headphones? Okay, so you can find my podcasts, Archive Admirers and Hyperfixations, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, you can listen to my production of A Christmas Carol on the Lesbianist uh, feed, because that needed a place to go. And so that's there. That's in five parts. So you've got like three hours worth of content. We've got some really epic voice actors to come in uh, and read the lines, and then I edit it, put in some like soundscaping and stuff. It's pretty good. I liked it. Uh, I had a lot of people tell me that it was good. It was my first ever attempt at audio production. Well, like on that scale, because I kind of did like a little thing before, but not like an audio production. Anyway, and then you can also find me on Twitter at Spicy Nigel, where. I've been tweeting about how hard this year has been already, my big hair, and the fact that I've taught my puppy Willow how to hand over her paw on command. Now she's just doing it on her own. <laughs> just, you tell her to sit and she like, hands out her paw just on her own. and she's just, She she's wants getting... a treat. That's what she's looking for. No, but see, here's the thing. We haven't incentivized her with a treat at all. We've just... God, I, like, I did this. I trained her to do this, and now everyone else in my family is benefiting from it. <laughs> I just kept going, paw, and, like, grabbing her paw. I would, like, point at it and tap at it, and then I'd grab her paw, and I would shake it. And I'd go, paw, shake, and then I'd give her a lot of pets and tell her a good girl. So I gave her, like, positive affirmation. But now she's just doing it. She's just doing it. She'll come over and just, like, put her paw up on your leg. And then you have to go and shake it. And she's getting more like handshakes and a politician out looking to be reelected. <laughs> Nigel, her incentivization is your love. She's a terror to humanity. <laughs> <laughs> I can vouch very much for the Christmas Carol production, which is wonderful. I can also very much vouch for the beauty of Nigel's very big hair on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. And you can find me on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog, at Monkey Backlog. We just recently released an episode that is all about James Cameron. 
Very exciting stuff. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club. You can find us on Instagram at Nanny Ogs Book Club. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Rate and follow us on Spotify. They have a new rating system on Spotify now. It would mean a lot to us if you would go on there and give us a rating. We need at least 10 for the average star rating to be shown, so at least 10 of you have to do it. Come on, guys, please. Yes, please, please, please. Follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I will say just before this, stay tuned to my Twitter for uh, more upcoming podcast announcements. That's all I'll say. That's exciting. Mysterious. Yes. Leave them wanting more. Nigel, read us out. The patrician sat by his window, writing. His mind was full of fluff as far as the last week or two was concerned, and he didn't like that much. A servant had lit a lamp to dispel the twilight, and a few early evening moths were orbiting it. The patrician watched them carefully. For some reason, he felt very uneasy in the presence of glass, but that, as he feared, stared fixedly at the insects, wasn't what bothered him most. What bothered him was that he was fighting a terrible urge to catch them with his tongue. And Wuffles lay on his back at his master's feet and barked in his dreams. Lights were going on all over the city but the last few strands of sunset illuminated the gargoyles as they helped one another up the long climb to the roof. The librarian watched them from the open door while giving himself a philosophic scratch. Then he turned and shut out the night. It was warm in the library. It was always warm in the library, because the scatter of magic that produced the glow also gently cooked the air. The librarian looked at his charges approvingly, made his last rounds of the slumbering shelves, and then dragged his blanket underneath his desk, ate a goodnight banana, and fell asleep. Silence gradually reclaimed the library. Silence drifted around the remains of a hat, heavily battered and frayed and charred around the edges, that had been placed with some ceremony in a niche in the wall. No matter how far a wizard goes, he will always come back for his hat. Silence filled the university in the same way that air fills a hole. Night spread across the disc like plum jam, or possibly blackberry preserve. But there would be a morning. There would always be another morning. The end.